Chapter Eight of the Old Regime in Canada by Francis Parkman, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight, sixteen fifty nine to sixteen sixty, Laval and Argenson. We are touching delicate ground. To many excellent Catholics of our own day, Laval is an object of veneration. The Catholic University of Quebec glories in bearing his name, and certain modern ecclesiastical writers rarely mention him in terms less reverent than the virtuous prelate or the holy prelate. Nor are some of his contemporaries less emphatic in eulogy. Mother Juchereau de Saint-Denis, superior of the Hotel Dieu, wrote immediately after his death. He began, in his tenderest years, the study of perfection, and we have reason to think that he reached it, since every virtue which St. Paul demands in a bishop was seen and admired in him. And on his first arrival in Canada, Mother Marie de la Incarnation, superior of the Ursulines, wrote to her son that the choice of such a prelate was not of man, but of God. I will not, she adds, say that he is a saint, but I may say with truth that he lives like a saint and an apostle, and she describes his austerity of life, how he had but two servants, a gardener, whom he lent on occasion to his needy neighbours, and a valet, how he lived in a small hired house, saying that he would not have one of his own if he could build it for only five sous, and how, in his table, furniture, and bed, he showed the spirit of poverty, even as she thinks to excess. His servant, a lay brother named Hussart, testified after his death that he slept on a hard bed and would not suffer it to be changed even when it became full of fleas, and, what is more to the purpose, that he gave fifteen hundred or two thousand francs to the poor every year. Hussart also gives the following specimen of his austerities. I have seen him keep cooked meat five six seven or eight days in the heat of summer and when it was all mouldy and wormy he washed it in warm water and ate it and told me that it was very good the old servant was so impressed by these and other proofs of his master's sanctity that i determined he says to keep everything i could that had belonged to his holy person, and after his death to soak bits of linen in his blood when his body was opened, and take a few bones and cartilage from his breast, cut off his hair and keep his clothes and such things to serve as most precious relics. These pious cares were not in vain, for the relics proved greatly in demand. Several portraits of Laval are extant, a drooping nose of portentous size, 
a well-formed forehead, a brow strongly arched, a bright clear eye, scanty hair half hidden by a black skull-cap, thin lips compressed and rigid, betraying a spirit not easy to move or convince, features of that indescribable cast which marks the priestly type such is laval as he looks grimly down on us from the dingy canvas of two centuries ago he is one of those concerning whom protestants and catholics at least ultramontane catholics will never agree in judgment the task of eulogizing him may safely be left to those of his own way of thinking it is for us to regard him from the standpoint of secular history and first let us credit him with sincerity he believed firmly that the princes and rulers of this world ought to be subject to guidance and control at the hands of the pope the vicar of christ on earth but he himself was the pope's vicar and so far as the bounds of Canada extended, the Holy Father had clothed him with his own authority. The glory of God demanded that this authority should suffer no abatement, and he, Laval, would be guilty before heaven if he did not uphold the supremacy of the Church over the powers both of earth and hell. Of the faults which he owed to nature, the principle seems to have been an arbitrary and domineering temper he was one of those who by nature leans always to the side of authority and in the english revolution he would inevitably have stood for the stuarts or in the american revolution for the crown but being above all things a catholic and a priest he was drawn by a constitutional necessity to the ultramontane party or the party of centralization he fought lustily in his way against the natural man and humility was the virtue to the culture of which he gave his chief attention but soil and climate were not favorable his life was one long assertion of the authority of the church and this authority was lodged in himself in his stubborn fight for ecclesiastical ascendancy he was aided by the impulses of a nature that loved to rule and could not endure to yield his principles and his instinct of domination were acting in perfect unison and his conscience was the handmaid of his fault austerities and mortifications playing at beggar sleeping in beds full of fleas or performing prodigies of gratuitous dirtiness in hospitals however fatal to self-respect could avail little against influences working so powerfully and so insidiously to stimulate the most subtle of human vices the history of the roman church is full of lavals the jesuits adepts in human nature had made a sagacious choice when they put forward this conscientious zealous dogged and pugnacious priest to fight their battles 
nor were they ill-pleased that for the present he was not bishop of canada but only vicar apostolic for such being the case they could have him recalled if on trial they did not like him while an unacceptable bishop would be an evil past remedy canada was entering a state of transition hitherto ecclesiastical influence had been all in all the jesuits by far the most educated and able body of men in the colony had controlled it not alone in things spiritual but virtually in things temporal also and the governor may be said to have been little else than a chief of police under the direction of the missionaries the early governors were themselves deeply imbued with the missionary spirit champlain was earnest above all things for converting the indians montmagny was half monk for he was a knight of malta d'alaboust was so insanely pious that he lived with his wife like monk and nun a change was at hand from a mission and a trading station canada was soon to become in the true sense a colony and civil government had begun to assert itself on the banks of the st lawrence the epoch of the martyrs and apostles was passing away and the man of the sword and the man of the gown the soldier and the legist were threatening to supplant the paternal sway of priests or as laval might have said the hosts of this world were beleaguering the sanctuary and he was called of heaven to defend it his true antagonist though three thousand miles away was the great minister colbert as purely a statesman as the vicar apostolic was purely a priest laval no doubt could see behind the statesman's back another adversary the devil argenson was governor when the crozier and the sword began to clash which is merely another way of saying that he was governor when laval arrived he seems to have been a man of education moderation and sense and he was also an earnest catholic but if laval had his duties to god so had argenson his duties to the king of whose authority he was the representative and guardian if the first collisions seem trivial they were no less the symptoms of a grave antagonism argenson could have purchased peace only by becoming an agent of the church the vicar apostolic or as he was usually styled the bishop being as it may be remembered titular bishop of betraya in arabia presently fell into a quarrel with the governor touching the relative position of their seats in church a point which by the way was a subject of contention for many years and under several successive governors this time the case was referred to the ex-governor d'alaboust and a temporary settlement took place a few weeks after on the fate 
of st francis xavier when the jesuits were accustomed to ask the dignitaries of the colony to dine in their refectory after mass a fresh difficulty arose should the governor or the bishop have the higher seat at table the question defied solution so the fathers invited neither of them again on christmas at the midnight mass the deacon offered incense to the bishop and then in obedience to an order from him sent a subordinate to offer it to the governor instead of offering it himself laval further insisted that the priests of the choir should receive incense before the governor received it argenson resisted and a bitter quarrel ensued the late governor d'alaboust had been church warden ex officio and in this pious community the office was esteemed as an addition to his honours argenson had thus far held the same position but laval declared that he should hold it no longer argenson to whom the bishop had not spoken on the subject came soon after to a meeting of the wardens and being challenged denied laval's right to dismiss him a dispute ensued in which the bishop according to his jesuit friends used language not very respectful to the representative of royalty on occasion of the solemn catechism the bishop insisted that the children should salute him before saluting the governor argenson hearing of this declined to come a compromise was contrived it was agreed that when the rival dignitaries entered the children should be busied in some manual exercise which should prevent their saluting either nevertheless two boys enticed and set on by their parents saluted the governor first to the great indignation of laval they were whipped on the next day for breach of orders next there was a sharp quarrel about a sentence pronounced by laval against a heretic to which the governor good catholic as he was took exception palm sunday came and there could be no procession and no distribution of branches because the governor and the bishop could not agree on points of precedence on the day of the fete dieu however there was a grand procession which stopped from time to time at temporary altars or reposoirs replaced at intervals along its course one of these was in the fort where the soldiers were drawn up waiting the arrival of the procession laval demanded that they should take off their hats argenson assented and the soldiers stood uncovered laval now insisted that they should kneel the governor replied that it was their duty as soldiers to stand whereupon the bishop refused to stop at the altar and ordered the procession to move on the above incidents are set down in the private journal of the superior of the jesuits which was not meant for the public eye the bishop it will be seen was by the showing of his friends in most cases the aggressor 
the disputes in question though of a nature to provoke a smile on irreverent lips were by no means so puerile as they appear it is difficult in a modern democratic society to conceive the substantial importance of the signs and symbols of dignity and authority at a time and among a people where they were adjusted with the most scrupulous precision and accepted by all classes as exponents of relative degrees in the social and political scale whether the bishop or the governor should sit in the higher seat at table thus became a political question for it defined to the popular understanding the position of church and state in their relations to government hence it is not surprising to find a memorial drawn up apparently by argenson and addressed to the council of state asking for instructions when and how a governor lieutenant-general for the king ought to receive incense holy water and consecrated bread whether the said bread should be offered him with sound of drum and fife what should be the position of his seat at church and what place he should hold in various religious ceremonies whether in feasts assemblies ceremonies and councils of a purely civil character he or the bishop was to hold the first place and finally if the bishop could excommunicate the inhabitants or others for acts of a civil and political character when the said acts were pronounced lawful by the governor the reply to the memorial denies to the bishop the power of excommunication in civil matters assigns to him the second place in meetings and ceremonies of a civil character and is very reticent as to the rest argenson had a brother a counsellor of state and a fast friend of the jesuits laval was in correspondence with him and apparently sure of sympathy wrote to him touching his relations with the governor your brother he begins received me on my arrival with extraordinary kindness but he proceeds to say that perceiving with sorrow that he entertained a groundless distrust of those good servants of god the jesuit fathers he the bishop thought it his duty to give him in private a candid warning which ought to have done good but which to his surprise the governor had taken amiss and had conceived in consequence a prejudice against his monitor argenson on his part writes to the same brother at about the same time the bishop of petraea is so stiff in opinion and so often transported by his zeal beyond the rights of his position that he makes no difficulty in encroaching on the functions of others and this with so much heat that he will listen to nobody a few days ago he carried off a servant girl and one of the inhabitants here and placed her by his own authority in the ursuline convent on the sole pretext that he wanted to have her instructed 
thus depriving her master of her services though he had been at great expense in bringing her from france this inhabitant is monsieur denis who not knowing who had carried her off came to me with a petition to get her out of the convent i kept the petition three days without answering it to prevent the affair from being noised abroad the reverend father lalemont with whom i communicated on the subject and who greatly blamed the bishop of betraya did all in his power to have the girl given up quietly but without the least success so that i was forced to answer the petition and permit monsieur denis to take his servant wherever he should find her and if i had not used means to bring about an accommodation and if monsieur denis on the refusal which was made him to give her up had brought the matter into court i should have been compelled to take measures which would have caused great scandal and all from the self-will of the bishop of petraea who says that a bishop can do what he likes and threatens nothing but excommunication in another letter he speaks in the same strain of this redundancy of zeal on the part of the bishop which often he says takes the shape of obstinacy and encroachment on the rights of others it is greatly to be wished he observes that the bishop of petraea would give his confidence to the reverend father lalemont instead of father ragueneau and he praises lalemont as a person of excellent sense it would be well he adds if the rest of their community were of the same mind for in that case they would not mix themselves up with various matters in the way they do and would leave the government to those whom god has given it in charge one of laval's modern admirers the worthy abbe ferland after confessing that his zeal may now and then have savoured of excess adds in his defence that a vigorous hand was needed to compel the infant colony to enter the good path meaning of course the straightest path of roman catholic orthodoxy we may hereafter see more of this stringent system of colonial education its success and the results that followed End of chapter 8